In the next episode, I want to show you how some governments enacted generous policies to help their countrymen and other people around the world, and how some governments fell short of some people's expectations during the COVID-19 crisis. You might assume that developed countries handle COVID-19 well, while all developing countries handle COVID-19 poorly. However, I will show you that it is not that clear-cut. Although I will show in two of my stories that a couple developing countries didn't handle COVID-19 well, I will show you a location in a developing country that handled COVID-19 well, and another developing country that even sent its own doctors to other countries to fight COVID-19. I will also show you how a country which is seen by the world as having one of the highest standards of living had its fair share of flaws with handling COVID-19. So put your policy wonk glasses on as we dive into hearing more from Linda Silas in Canada, Dr. Graciliano Diaz in Cuba, K.K. Shalaha in Pinara Vilijan in Kerala, India, a whistleblowing doctor in South Africa, and Dr. Hani Bakr in Egypt. This next story is Dr. Whistleblower, how a South African doctor is trying to follow the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath, an oath that doctors swear by, was introduced in 400 BCE before it was discovered by German medieval scholars in the 1500s, translated into English in the 1700s, and rewritten by Louis Lasagna in 1964. The theme emphasizes how a patient's need should be considered before all else and that the purpose of medicine is to treat the ill. I'll read it out loud for you. I swear to fulfill, to the best of my ability and judgment, this covenant. I will respect the hard-won scientific gains of those physicians whose steps I walk in and gladly share such knowledge as is mine with those who are to follow. I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures that are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warm sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drugs. I will not be ashamed to say, I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. I will respect the privacy of my patients, for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. Most especially must I tread in care in matters of life and death. If it is given me to save a life, all thanks but it may also be within my power to take a life. This awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. Above all, I must not play at God. I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. My responsibility includes these related problems if I am to care adequately for the sick. I will prevent disease whenever I can, for prevention is preferable to cure. I will remember that I remain a member of society with special obligations to all my fellow human beings, those sound of mind and body, as well as the infirm. If I do not violate this oath, may I enjoy life and art, respect it while I live, and remember with affection thereafter. May I always act so as to preserve the finest traditions of my calling, and may I long experience the joy of healing those who seek my help. Dr. Zhang Hongzhu wrote a paper regarding whether medical professions should be whistleblowers. 
His answer was a resounding yes due to the Hippocratic Oath that medical professionals take. And I agree as well. Unfortunately, it can be all too common for administrators to ignore medical advice due to corruption or political gain, which can put the patient's lives at risk. But one doctor had the guts to call it out when she saw it happening. A canopy was placed in a car park and was used by the Sybil King Hospital in Sybil King, South Africa as a makeshift waiting room. However, it turned out, according to a doctor at Sybil King Hospital, it was a complete disaster. She discussed how elderly patients fainted after not having access for two days or more to heating, sanitation, or food. She also mentioned how sick people had to gather around three small electric heaters, which broke down frequently. And although there were problems with lack of equipment in other countries, this canopy provided almost no equipment to adequately treat patients. In an interview with BBC, this doctor mentioned, quote, We don't have drugs, no ventilator equipment. There was PPE lying all over the place, waiting to infect more people. Doctors weren't the only people negatively affected by this. Jeanette Lombo's son, Martin, died at the age of 30 at Sybil King Hospital. When asked for her response to his death in a BBC interview, she responded, quote, It's corruption and carelessness. Initially, Martin complained about swollen legs, but wasn't treated for COVID-19. However, his night in the tent pushed him beyond his limits. Quote, it was freezing. He was shivering, starving. He said, I spent the whole night here without any blanket. I'm going to die. Nobody's taking care of me. According to internal discussions on a WhatsApp group seen by BBC between doctors and management, doctors wrote how they were against the usage of tents due to the risk it could pose to patients. Quote, I have never been in favor of tents. I find making our people sleep in cold tents inhumane. Likewise, the whistleblower was worried about how the funds that were supposed to go towards treating COVID-19 patients were going to other things instead. Quote, we haven't seen that money. I do know management is aware of our struggles. We've tried multiple times as doctors and nurses to try to ask management where the money is being allocated. Unfortunately, mismanagement of funds due to political connections is a common problem in South Africa. The African National Congress, the ruling party, is being asked by the Democratic Alliance, the opposition party, to explain how 37 million rand, or about $2.2 million, could have possibly been spent on a 40-kilometer border fence to keep Zimbabweans with COVID-19 out. Also, the head of the SIU, an organization which aims to fight against maladministration and malpractice that may harm the public, say that it was going through 658 cases across the country involving about 5 billion rand, the first time a number has been put on the alleged corrupt gains. In fact, it's gotten so bad that the president's own spokeswoman is involved in a scandal with her husband. Her husband's company has been accused of getting about 7 million rand or about 420,000 US dollar contract to supply PPE through his political connections. Even though the doctor is fighting an uphill battle, it is admirable she is speaking out against a systemic problem and cares enough about her patients to risk losing her job due to her speaking out against these injustices. However, this option of a jaw lapse shouldn't be possible since whistleblowing can fall under the category of the Hippocratic Oath. One of the parts of the Hippocratic Oath is to prevent disease whenever possible. It would be significantly harder for doctors to prevent disease when their patients are sleeping in tents instead of hospital beds, and when doctors lack monetary assistance for equipment and even lack getting access to the equipment itself. So why is it considered risky for a doctor to expose information in order to protect the patients? 
This next story is Exposing the Bare Truth About Canada's Response to COVID-19, What Linda Silas Wants to Say. Although patients haven't been sleeping in tents in Canada, things still haven't been handled as well as they should have been. Believe it or not, Canada has had its issues with handling COVID-19. An Ipsos poll from April 2020 showed that 50% of Canadians thought that more severe restrictions should have been put in place sooner. The Canadian province, Alberta, had to donate medical supplies to another province. The federal government didn't come up with guidelines regarding long-term home care facilities and nursing homes until April 13, 2020. But Linda Sillis has held nothing back while pointing out these pitfalls. When I asked Linda in a personal interview what she would do if she was Minister of Health, this was her response. If I'd be Minister of Health, I'd shake my head and say, how come I did not take care of the healthcare workforce, which in uh, Canada has been the most impacted workforce around the world. Linda graduated from the Université de Montaigne with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. She then got involved in the New Brunswick Nurses' Union, where she was elected president in 1990. In 2003, she was elected national president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses' Unions, a union which represents 200,000 nurses. She still holds that position to this day. Soon after her election, she got the unanimous agreement of territorial and provincial premiers to give support to a national pharmacare program. When Linda found out that Catherine Slinsky, a nurse who was kicked out of her room since her landlord was worried she would have COVID-19, was able to find a job at a long-term care facility, but admitted that a lot of nurses take on multiple jobs to afford to pay the bills. Her response in an interview with CBC was, quote, everything is part-time and everything is about finding more than one job to survive. Some nurses' pay is so low that a group of 700 physicians, medical students, and residents in Quebec signed a petition for the pay raises to be cancelled due to them feeling like it wasn't in good conscience to accept the pay raise while those like clerks and nurses had more difficult working conditions. Likewise, some nurses complained over the 1% pay increase from recent legislation since they feel it demoralizes the work they do, especially in the time of COVID-19. Likewise, in an interview with the Canadian press, Linda discussed how there is a shortage of personal care workers and the negative repercussions that can result from a shortage. Quote, there are shortages of care aides, also called personal support workers, which adds more stress to a challenging work environment. The working conditions are very difficult. You're working short all the time, you're never guaranteed registered nurses, and often your only option is to send your patient to the hospital when often it's not what they need and what's best for them. And your personal care workers are not often permanent employees. They work casual or part-time, and they work in different facilities, so there's always a turnover. Miranda Ferrier, the president of the Canadian Support Workers Association, noted that some personal support workers cry because of the exhaustion from a heavy workload, working as often as 16 hours a day. The, Can the Canada Health Act gives federal funding to hospitals and the acute care sector, but the same can't be said for other agencies. When I asked Linda to comment on this, she said... Our long-term care sector, uh, with the uh, care of the age uh, and home care also, is not well protected. Although Canada has done a better job handling COVID-19 compared to the U.S., 
due to its universal health care system that lets public health authorities have more control over hospitals compared to the U.S.'s private health care system. Even former Cigna health insurance executive Wendell Porter wrote, quote, Amid America's COVID-19 disaster, I must come clean about the lie I spread as a healthcare insurance executive. We spent big money to push the idea that Canada's single-payer system was awful and the U.S. system much better. It was a lie, and the nation's COVID responses prove it. I'll regret slandering Canada's system for the rest of my life. In Canada, there are no deductibles, co-pays, or co-insurance, and the unemployed don't have to worry about losing health insurance. Meanwhile, according to a Weston Gallup poll studying 1,000 American adults from April 1st to April 14th, 2020, quote, 14% of respondents said they would skip getting medical help if they or a family member had a cough and a fever because of concerns about the cost of care. Canada is still far from being called a healthcare utopia. Some healthcare workers have had to take on multiple jobs and work long hours. Meanwhile, in the U.S., it's common for us to admire our neighbors up north. We envision a perfect health care system, a stable social safety net, and content people. However, as people like Linda have pointed out, that isn't 100% true. What other preconceptions may we have of developed or developing countries, especially to when it comes down to which countries handle COVID-19 well? The next story is Arrested in Egypt for Constructive Criticism? How One Man Was Arrested Over Protective Equipment Elise Linda hasn't been arrested for speaking out. Unfortunately, the current regime of Abdul Fattah al-Sisi has created a culture of fear in Egypt. In September 2019 alone, over 2,000 people were arrested for demonstrating against him. And arrests have continued, even during the time of COVID-19, where there have been close to 105,000 cases in Egypt as of October 2020. The Arab Network for Human Rights has reported that, quote, at least 500 people have been arrested for criticizing the official response to the disease. Lawyers representing them noted that they were arrested specifically for speaking out over the desire for better infection control measures and the desire for more protective equipment. The government has accused them of spreading fake news, misusing social media, and having links to the Muslim Brotherhood, Egypt's largest and oldest Muslim organization that former Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi was a part of before getting ousted in a coup led by al-Sisi. One of the people arrested was ophthalmologist Hani Bakr from the Kaliba province. He was arrested in April 2020 over social media posts he made in early April 2020, where he explained how he was repulsed over how Egypt was sending protective gear and masks to China and Italy, while Egypt's healthcare workers didn't have that equipment. To this day, Bakr is still detained. These doctors have a right to complain. According to the World Health Organization, about 11% of the people infected by COVID-19 in Egypt are healthcare workers. Likewise, when Dr. Walid Yahia got coronavirus, all of his colleagues threatened to resign due to a lack of protective measures in the hospital, low pay, and security threats. Amnesty International stated that doctors like Dr. Hani Bakr have been released, but it shouldn't have taken a whole campaign. The president should shift his focus towards fighting COVID-19 instead of fighting doctors like Hani. The next story is Kerala's Contamination Control Strategy. How a communist state did a good job containing COVID-19. Just as it may surprise us to hear that Canada didn't handle COVID-19 as well as it could have, it may surprise us to hear that a communist state handled COVID-19 well. Many of us envision communist systems failing, 
the revolutionary wave of the late 1980s and the early 1990s resulted in the end of communist rule in Eastern and Central European countries, and the Soviet Union formally dissolved in 1991. However, one communist state has managed to handle containing COVID-19 well. On September 3, 2020, the state of Kerala in India has had 79,625 confirmed cases and 315 deaths, compared to a total of 3.85 million confirmed cases and 67,376 deaths in India. K.K. Shalaha, current Minister of Health and Social Welfare in Kerala, stated in an interview with Professor Madhuka Pai that past reforms gave them an advantage with combating the virus. Quote, From 15, 1957, we have built our public health system. We have had so many reforms, land reforms, educational reforms, that also have helped. Pindre Vijayan, chief minister of Kerala, also thought the success had to do with the decentralized governance that emerged under the communist rule in an interview he did with the Hindu. Quote, Historically, Kerala has had a strong system of decentralized governance. As a result, there is considerable community participation in the planning process, which has enriched the decentralization of power. It is this strong system of participatory governance that has helped Kerala in the containment measures related to the COVID-19 pandemic. A state or central government can give broad directions and guidelines, but people's participation under the leadership of empowered local governments seems to be the most effective strategy to contain the spread of COVID-19. Kerala had an early start with classifying the the threat that COVID-19 posed. On February 4, 2020, Kerala declared COVID-19 a state of calamity before the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 as a pandemic over a month later. It also had a public health campaign called Break the Chain, which emphasizes the importance of hand washing and sanitation. The government installed hand washing stations outside the bus stops and railway stations and put hand sanitizers in all offices. It also conducted more than 13,000 tests during the first week of April 2020, compared to 6,000 tests carried out that same week in Andhra Pradesh, a larger state. It has also done some things that make the U.S. pale in comparison. For example, the government has declared free groceries to families and has made community kitchens that give cooked food to guest workers and homeless people. Meanwhile, the president and CEO of Meals on Wheels, an organization in the USA which aims to deliver free meals to senior citizens, wrote in a press release in late July 2020 that the COVID-19 relief packages currently proposed since the end of July have fallen short of providing enough funding and support for nutritional programs. Likewise, Kerala has provided rapid test kits to check for symptoms of COVID-19 within 2.5 hours. Meanwhile, there have been stories reported where people in the USA have had to wait two to three weeks to get results. However, Kerala went through a rough second wave. India BBC correspondent Sotin Biswas wrote in July 20, 2020, quote, One reason, say experts, for the sharp uptick is that nearly half a million workers returned to the state from the Gulf countries and other parts of India after the grinding countrywide lockdown, which shut businesses and threw people out of their jobs. Although it's inaccurate to say that Kerala has eradicated COVID-19 due to the second wave, it doesn't take away from the fact that it handled combating COVID-19 seriously from the beginning. Should we really judge a country or a state's handling of their policies solely based on whether they have a communist government, a capitalist government, or anywhere in between? 
Shouldn't we instead judge them based upon how well their policies affect the most vulnerable? The next story is Graciliano's imperative trip to Italy, how a Cuban doctor has defied President Trump's stereotype. Let's travel to another place that may surprise us. This country has sent doctors to other countries on missions. You may be thinking of Japan or Finland. Nope, this happened in Cuba. Graciliano Diaz isn't just any normal Cuban doctor. He's traveled the world to cure people of illnesses ranging from Ebola in West Africa to cholera in Haiti. And he hasn't stopped traveling. He, along with 35 other doctors, 15 nurses, and a logistical expert, were sent to Lombardy, Italy, a former COVID-19 hotspot, to help treat people in March 2020. Unfortunately, this admirable act is being used by those in power to play politics against the Cuban government. However, Graciliano wants to talk about his experience, in his own words. Graciliano studied medicine from 1978 to 1984. He became a specialist in 1988. In 2002, Graciliano performed his first mission in Bolivia. It was during Black October, where domestic violence swallowed up the nation. Graciliano's location was described as, quote, a very poor area without electricity, but he still thought that the mission was, quote, beautiful. Though he described Guinea as the most intense experience, not only did he create the comprehensive health plan in six regions of the country in 2011, but he returned in 2014 at the peak of the Ebola outbreak, where he was the only one, along with the services chief, to treat patients in the entire ward. Graciliano was then called to serve in Italy, while it was considered one of the epicenters of COVID-19, the first time a Cuban brigade served in a developed country. But that didn't stop Graciliano from staying true to why he came in the first place at the time when COVID-19 killed 19, 919 Italians on March 27th alone. Quote, being humane is what's most important, to share what we have with those who are in need. And right now, Italy needs us. Graciliano was aware of what those in Washington, D.C. thought of him. Throughout the past three years, the Trump administration had accused doctors like Graciliano of being, quote, slaves and henchmen who go on these missions just to, quote, sow political discord and spread communism. President Trump succeeded in suspending the program in Ecuador, Brazil, and Bolivia, where thousands of doctors were sent back to Cuba. However, the Italian government did not pay any heed, nor did Graciliano. Quote, we do this voluntarily. It doesn't matter to us that other countries brand us as slaves. What matters to us is that we contribute to the world. And Italy's investment was worth it. During the two months of work in the city of Crema, the 36 doctors and 15 nurses provided 5,526 medical services. Graciliano's wife also said, quote, We communicate frankly, frequently, and he pointed out that they worked a lot, in addition that since they were in Labarde, no patient had died. This is impressive considering that of the 34,000 people that died from coronavirus in Italy, 16,000 of those deaths came from Lombardy. 28,000 Cuban health professionals worked in 59 countries prior to COVID-19, and Cuba sent more than 2,000 doctors and nurses to 23 countries since the COVID-19 crisis began. There is a story regarding how some Cuban doctors were ordered to go door-to-door in poor neighborhoods to warn residents that they'd be cut off from medical services if they did not vote for Maduro in Venezuela, but it's ridiculous to claim that all 28,000 Cuban health professionals are just spreading political information when they go on their missions. We should be thankful that doctors like Garciliano are willing to risk their lives to help strangers suffering from COVID-19 all around the world. 
How many more deaths would have been prevented if it, in Italy if people like Graciliano hadn't intervened?